0: Jesus came to save
1: a diverse people, and through His blood and the indwelling of the Spirit, we are now invited to live as a harmonious, unified family. This series will help you step into the life, teaching, and empowering presence of Jesus so you can follow Him in your home, with your finances, and in your vocation.
0: Now let's hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went down to the region of Judea, east of the Jordan River. Large crowds followed him there, and he healed their sick. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied. The record they record... That from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Then, why did Moses say in the law that man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? They asked. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Jesus' disciples said to him, if this is the case, it is better not to marry. Not everyone can accept this statement, Jesus said, only those whom God helps. Some are born as eunuchs. Some have been made eunuchs by others, and some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could lay his hands on them and pray for them, but the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. But Jesus said, "'Let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children.' And he placed his hands on their heads and blessed them before he left." This is the word of the Lord.
1: You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. Good morning. Uh, uh, My name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn, and thank you for being with us. A couple of quick notes before we get going. Uh, First off, you can't respond, but if you're listening on the internet, you need to Send Jason Heath a quick thank you message. Our IT superman came in and saved the day about 15 minutes before the service. Uh, Internet, the whole Internet was broken. And Jason fixed the entire Internet. So if you're on the Internet at all. Uh, thank you, Jason. Yeah. I don't really know what you did. The, the FTP firewall was done with the DHCP converter uh, around the uh, back end. So, Jason, I have no idea. But thank you for that. Um, also... In a couple of weeks, I'm excited to announce we're gonna start our reentry program, our reentry plan for Sojourn Kids. So, early in October, <laughs> one student up front is excited. Uh, we're gonna start reopening classes. So, on October the 4th, we're gonna have Sojourn Kids open for ages four and under, and then we're gonna slowly add classes after that based on volunteers. Um, As you can imagine, there are lots of challenges doing this. We want it to be safe. We want it to be encouraging. Um, And so we're, yeah, a lot of the increase of class offerings will be based on volunteers. And so, you know, there's uh, in our kind of new system now, as we're changing things, uh, there's all kinds of options available to you if you don't want to deal with children. Some of you are afraid of children or feel like you're not competent to teach children. And so we've got additional, um, we've just got more roles now, whether it's holding open doors, greeting, cleaning toys, sanitizing rooms between services. There's, there's all kinds of opportunities. And, and basically to fulfill our, our current uh, plan, we need 28 volunteers to serve. And if, if some of you serve every other week, then that would double that, 28 times two. Anybody do quick math? 56. 56 is 28 times 2. That's a little concerning. <laughs> That's a little concerning. Uh, so, you know, there's just, it's a, it's a, to try to provide a safe experience while still doing the same level of education and discipleship for our children, it's going to require more people to be involved. So, Think about it, pray about it. If you're at all interested or want to hear either about our plans, uh, how we've changed a little bit for the sake of health and safety, or some of the various roles that might be available to you, you can email Chrissy Smith. Uh, Her email, I think, is on the screen, Lord willing, csmith at sojournchurch.com. And also, we have flexible volunteer options. Some of you may have been a part of a church before where uh, serving in the kids' ministry was a lifetime sentence, and it's like, or Hotel California, if you're old enough for that. You, know, you can check in any time you like, but you can't ever leave. Uh, that is not the case here. We have limited service cycles, and you know exactly how long you're serving for, and it's flexible. So if you're curious or interested in that, email Chrissy. Um, also, one more quick thing. We've been talking about these listening sessions that are coming up for a week, and that's where we're having meetings with minorities from our church, underrepresented people, people of color, where we're trying to listen and hear what their experience has been like at Sojourn. And there's been lots of questions about this, and people have been asking, who is this for? Can I come? And so real quick, if if your ethnicity is not a major part of your self-identity or how you view yourself in the world, and it's not a major part of how someone you love or are married to views the world is probably not for you. If it is, then then you can come. And people are like, well, what's going to happen? Are we changing the whole church? We have zero plans of anything that we're going to change. We're going to listen, and then we're going to talk about any of our findings. We're going to have a report put together. It'll be a member meeting, and we won't make any big changes without talking to everybody and getting everybody on board. We've made several big changes in the life of our church, generally speaking. They've never been quick. They've never been overnight. So I just want to try to speak a word of peace to some people that are worried that you're going to show up one Sunday and our whole church is, going to be different based on some conversation that you weren't a part of. That's not what we're going to do. Uh, Also, Bobby and the Midweek Checkup crew talked about this a little bit last week, the listening sessions, and so you can listen to the whole Midweek Checkup from last week to hear more about our listening sessions, or Bobby posted just a short clip from that longer conversation. Uh, And as always, feel feel free to reach out if you have any questions um, to any of your pastors. We'd be happy to talk about it. All right? maybe not all right, I guess. <laughs> okay, I'll just be me up here. That's okay. we will just go by myself. Um, thank you, Glenda. Glenda's here. So we're back in the book of Matthew. We've been in the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, for almost two years, grand total. We've been there, and we're picking up in, in chapter 19. Um, over the next 10 weeks in this series, we're calling family values. So we went from family matters, so issues that pertain to our family, to now family values. And uh, I don't know how you feel about this, but so it is. It's the Bible. I don't know what you want me to do about it. Jesus is going to get much more personal with us unless less uh, talking about corporate things or corporate realities like we have. Or if you remember our previous series through Matthew, we talked about what is the church, what's the church for, what makes a church a church. And now we deal with a lot more personal topics. Um, and we'll have to face realities that most of us would like to avoid. But thanks be to God, we're used to that by now over the last, over the last six weeks. So over the next 10 weeks, we're going to talk about marriage, we're going to talk about money, we're going to talk about work and jobs, we're going to talk about authority, we're going to talk about judgment, heavy uh, but eternally important topics. And I think, I think deliberately, and for me thankfully, Matthew helps us see right away the context of these deeply personal, and even today, controversial teachings. We don't come to an angry, disappointed God. Some of you need to hear that every day. Uh, We do not have an angry, disappointed God looking down at us, uh, just wishing that we were doing a little bit better. Um, Instead, Jesus shows us a God that comes to us to heal us. And so verse 2, verses 1 through 2 really, set the context for if you're in Christ, how does God approach you now? Um, So look at it with me. Um, 19, 1 through 2. When Jesus had finished saying these things... He left Galilee and went down to the region of Judea, east of the Jordan River. Large crowds followed him there, and he healed their sick. Now, that verse, too, is hugely important, but it, it reads really, really normal for us. Um, he finishes what he was up to in Matthew 18, which is still in all of your Bibles. You can go read what he was happening there. And it says, he comes down the mountain after this teaching, and he heals their sick. It's not a very particularly strange idea in the Gospels, especially if you've been with us through all of Matthew, Um, but it's so cool. And listen, you guys, I don't like throwing Greek words at you. I don't like doing that thing, but sometimes you got to when it's this cool. So healed here comes from this Greek word, put it up, atherapoisin. Anybody want to try it? I'm not even sure that's how you say it, but I don't know. There's enough MDivs in the room. Atherapoisin, atherapusin, I don't know where the breathing marks are, which is a Greek thing. Uh, can anybody guess just by looking at it you don't have to have any kind of theology degree what English word do we get from this word anybody want to guess therapy, therapy. yeah give them the next slide I try to help you hey, therape. See? <laughs> therapy see uh, therapy this is where we get the English word therapy from there's lots of words in Greek that we could translate healing um, in some ways Greek There's limitations in every language. English is kind of like seeing the world in black and white, and Greek is kind of like seeing in 3D color. They've got so many words and different ways to flavor and nuance language. There's lots of ways that they could have talked about the healing ministry of Jesus and used a different word there for healing. Uh, In the ministry of Jesus, this word is unique. Um, It describes the kind of healing only God can provide. And it includes physical, medical treatment, but it goes beyond that to the healing of the the body, the mind, the soul. What this word, atheropoison, points to is the restoration of humanity. uh, uh, Restoring somebody's humanness. It's a key theme in Matthew. This idea of uh, flourishing. Or think back to the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount. A better way of being human. So After teaching, Jesus therapies the crowds. He seeks to restore their humanity. Over these next few weeks, in some ways you could think of yourself as being in the therapist's couch, doing deep soul work. But we have to see, particularly if some of these teachings over the next few weeks of Jesus hit you funny, or they feel confrontational. We have to receive them in this context. This is a compassionate God coming to us for the restoration of our souls. We have a God who is eager to restore our humanity. He doesn't wait for us to clean up. He draws near to us in order to heal us. He shows us the family values His children are to pursue for the sake of their own healing. This is quite different than the religious elites of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. One commentator I like a lot, he he describes them as the serious and sophisticated. You know those people who are always serious, they're kind of uptight, they're checking every jot and tittle. They don't want to be in the therapist's chair. They want Jesus in the witness stand. So they come to him in verse three. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? So listen now. Trickery is always motivated by Satan. Trapping, trickery, even if you're not aware of it, even if the other person isn't aware of it, when someone is setting you up and trapping you, all of your alarm bells should go off. This is not a sincere, genuine conversation. And that helps us to understand some of what Jesus says and some of what he doesn't say. We make a mistake if we receive this as Jesus' exhaustive teaching on marriage marriage and divorce. He's responding to a demonic trap. So Jesus's goal in here is not primarily to teach us about marriage or to teach us about divorce. It's not his exhaustive ultimate teaching there. His first goal, and this is the healing of his listener's souls, and the second goal is responding to the trap of the serious and the sophisticated. So the trap here relates to a first century controversy around the grounds for divorce. As in our day, marriage in the religious community was most often talked about in terms of divorce. Have you noticed how serious Christians tend to talk about their lives in, term, in terms of sin or sin management? Where's the line? You remember the middle school conversation, how far is too far? What am I allowed to do? So is it okay if I go here? Well, how long can I, if one drink is okay, well, how many drinks can I have until I'm, you know, had too much? You you, you know that game we play? How close to the line can I get before this is actually something bad? As we'll see, though, the family of God, true Christians, don't want to know where the line is. They want to know where Jesus is. You know the difference? We're not trying to run away from sin. We're trying to run towards Jesus. So the serious and sophisticated ask a ridiculous question can you get divorced for any reason? They're baiting Jesus, hoping that he responds with, of course not, you can't get divorced. And then they would point to passages like Deuteronomy 24 that permit divorce. If he says, sure, you can get a divorce for any reason, they spring the trap the other way and say you're fast and loose with the scriptures, like what some people in that day did with the Bible. Deuteronomy 24, so here's, you know, where the Bible interpretation becomes a little bit tricky and people can twist it and manipulate it, even the scriptures. Deuteronomy 24 says a woman or a man may divorce his wife uh, if he finds some indecency in her. Some indecency is the controversial phrase. Uh, Some folks interpreted that as only certain forms of sexual sin. Other people said some indecency means just something indecent. And so, you know what started to sound indecent? My wife's cooking sounds indecent, so I'm gonna divorce her. Uh, my wife's new, cl- my, her new fall wardrobe isn't decent to me, so I'm going to divorce her. I mean, it really became, uh, marriage, in essence, became a consumer commodity on one end or a litmus test for true faith on the other. So the true faith people, no divorce ever, don't do anything. And then, you know, the, the consumeristic version was, really, you can divorce your wife for anything. They made Deuteronomy 24 a big enough bucket that you could fit anything in there as a reason to divorce your wife. And the serious and sophisticated, they they didn't want to know what Jesus thought about marriage. I'm convinced of that. They really didn't want to know what Jesus thought about marriage. They wanted to trap him and label him as this or that ultimately so they could kill him. Jesus responds by pointing them first to the original intent of marriage. So he says in verse four, Haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied, which is hilarious to me. The professional Bible readers come up and get in a fuss with Jesus. Like, well, haven't you read the book that you're talking about? They record that from the beginning, quote, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Since they're no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together a ton going on in here. If you're at the least bit interested in commentaries, these are a great two verses to read about because there is a ton going on in here. And just point out a couple of things. Uh, Jesus asserts that they have too low a view of the Bible. He's both affirming the authority of the Scriptures and rebuking the serious and sophisticated, or the SS, as I like to call them, because they could, you know, they've got that tyrannical bite about them. Um, they have too low a view of the Bible. So I don't know how how much of that verse fits on the screen. I wasn't looking. Ah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's a good one to leave up. So first, just a couple of things that Jesus is doing to navigate these traps. First, he affirms men and women are made in God's image. You see how he puts men and women on, on equal footing here? He isn't offering a new teaching, but he's calling a twisted culture back to a very, very old teaching. Marriage is not just a man's game. Marriage is not just to be decided and led on the whims of a man, but there is two people involved, a man and a woman. And Jesus here is affirming the message of Genesis, that men and women are made in the image of God. They are both equal partners in this marriage union. He's elevating the value of women in that society. Second, he's affirming that God's design is good. He roots marriage, he refers to something that happens before the fall, before sin enters in the world. He roots marriage in God's original design and intention. It is good. It's a holy pursuit that's pleasing to the Lord. And so in a way, he's saying marriage is not a consumer commodity, meant to be built on preferences and whims, but rather it's the design of God. He affirms three, sexuality is good. He says, okay, here's what sexuality is. It's a man and a woman coming together in marriage for their life. That is the Bible's view of of human sexuality. It was a crazy idea back then. And that Roman culture, for Jesus to be able to say something like that, and the influence of these people coming against the influence of the religious people, and Jesus affirms human sexuality is good, which bothers one side, and... It's for one man and one woman for one lifetime, which bothers the other side. Physical and emotional intimacy is a good, intentional part of God's design. And then fourth, he denies promiscuous divorce. So at the end, he says, can you get that next slide up? One day we'll have like the power glove. You remember that with Nintendo? And you can just swipe the slides with your hand. Um, so let no one split apart what God has joined together. So there that no one split apart, that's here's another nerdy Greek thing for you. That's a continuous action. It's an ongoing ripping. It's an ongoing tearing apart. So what he's saying is stop tearing each other apart when God is the one who has brought this together. Divorce is damaging and should not be normal. Divorce should not be normal. And again, Because he roots this in what God has done, not our changing preferences. In a few brief words, Jesus exalts the authority of Scripture and God's design for marriage high above the Pharisees' understanding. He's navigating both of their traps succinctly, powerfully, and scripturally. But the SS are not satisfied, they're not pleased, they don't like the idea that he might get out of this trap, so they press it further. Why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away, they said. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. But it's not what God had originally intended. I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery, unless his wife has been unfaithful. So here's another thing. You could go spend weeks and months and years reading Deuteronomy 24, and all that Jesus is talking about here. And if you're interested or confused, I would strongly encourage you to do that. If you want to know what you should read, be happy to. But I will save you some reading now if you are not interested and you just want to get right to the the summary um, of what Moses is doing in Deuteronomy 24. So first, Moses is not pro-divorce. He's not pro-divorce. Notice he permits them divorce. He doesn't command divorce. He's not pro-divorce. He's anti-murder and anti-promiscuity. It was a concession. First, because if adultery happened, somebody was often killed. Deuteronomy 24 was trying to protect human life. It was also trying to protect vulnerable women because women were typically so marginalized in that society, they had little recourse with a promiscuous husband. If he's out constantly running around and she says something and is going to be murdered— She's quite a bit trapped. Moses here's another way to put a, think about it. Moses' divorce concession, which that's an important word, concession, was a pro-life concession. He didn't command divorce. He permitted it in some situations. And this concession was allowed to try to preserve life as much as possible. And notice the permission was a result of hard-heartedness because of where your heart is. Jesus is giving us the divine interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, and he's staying with the central theme of all of Matthew's gospel, which is the necessity for the human heart to be healed in order to have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. We have been talking about that for years now. It is a core theme of Jesus's ministry here, the healing of our hearts, the restoration of our hearts. Healthy marriages require transformed hearts. So big picture, what Jesus is saying in response to this trap here is first, God's primary will is for indissoluble marriage, which means one man, one woman for one lifetime. That is his primary goal. That is his big intention. But second, in a world currently broken, sometimes divorce may occur. So this is the tension. God has an overarching will and a desire, and there is a secondary permission, uh, in light of the reality that we are currently living in. So again, Jesus is responding to a demonic trap. And we cannot use these verses as the only thing God reveals to us about marriage and divorce. The Bible speaks about it in all kinds of ways. It speaks about the marriage relationship in all kinds of places. And so I'm just gonna say that one more time. Do not use these verses as the Bible's only teaching on marriage. This is Jesus responding to a demonic trap. It's not his exhaustive teaching on marriage. To that end, the pastors and lots of folks from the congregation, members, deacons, various levels, have spent the last two years, the last two years clarifying what do we think the Bible teaches about marriage and divorce. Um, And we've been working hard to summarize what our church believes the Scripture teaches about this. So again, in the app, you will find our marriage and divorce position paper. It goes into greater detail about what marriage is, the definition of marriage, the purpose of marriage, when divorce and remarriage may happen, um, and helpful resources for your own learning and growing. So I'm not trying to avoid any of these difficult realities here in the passage, but just acknowledge this passage is more so about our healing and Jesus responding to a trap than Jesus offering his once and for all exhaustive teaching on marriage. So if you want to read that, I I would strongly encourage you to read that. It's in your app. And again, if you have any questions, we can talk about it. What I want to focus on with our last few minutes, though, is in what way does marriage transform our hearts? How does marriage heal us? What is Jesus's invitation to not just move away from sin, but what is the life that he's calling us into for those who are married or want to be married? How can marriage help transform our hearts? So first... Marriage creates a powerful place for the mission of God. A powerful place for the mission of God. So, think with me now. Jesus roots his response to this trap in the creator's original design. God brings the two together and has a mission for them. This is what theologians will call the creation mandate. Fill the earth and subdue it. That's dominion, that's stewardship, that's cultivating. We were designed to have, to come together, to have authority on the earth and to make it beautiful. That's one way you could think about the creation mandate. Have kids and do stuff to make this wild earth more like the Garden of Eden, beautiful and wonderful. So what's important to notice, again, this is some of the intensity and the depth of what Jesus is saying in verses four through six. Uh, this kind of marriage is a rejection of consumeristic marriage where we look to the other to meet all of our needs. The Jerry Maguire marriage, you complete me, be everything. Jerry Maguire, that's like mid-90s. Nobody watched that movie anymore, right? That's past, Whatever. This idea that there is a person out there, the one, and if once I meet the one, then everything will take care of itself and I'll live happily ever after. And so we create these lists of what am I looking for? What are you looking for? Or We go on our profile and say, I want someone like this, and like this, and like this, and like this, and like this. And we go to the buffet of humanity and try to select all of these things that we want out of a person. And then what happens when that person isn't what we want them to be? You find some indecency in them, and we can move on to something else. This is a rejection of consumeristic marriage where we look to the other to meet all of our needs, to be what we want, to pick up and put down when we want. The picture in the scriptures of marriage is one of partnership and mutual submission. Paul states this explicitly in his teaching in marriage from Ephesians 5. Before he ever talks about husbands and wives, he says, now listen, both of you, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's a mutual submission happening in the marriage relationship. Uh, A husband looks to his wife and says, how can I support you in becoming who God made you to be? And a wife says to her husband, how can I support you in becoming who God made you to be? I'm telling you, great marriages are not built on preferences. They are built on a great mission. And a great mission requires a couple to know who they are and where they're going to have a posture of support and empowerment with the other. This week, if you're like, I have no idea what any of that means, sit down with your spouse and say, what is our marriage about? And don't, don't give each other a grade on how you answer that question. If it's like, I got no idea what our, what our marriage is about. I thought it was about the kids. Well, listen, the kids are going to be gone in a little while. You know, they're going to be gone in a little while. What is the vision for your, for your marriage? What do you want your marriage to look like in five years, 10 years, 30 years? Where are you going? What is the mission of your marriage? If you're single, allow this reality to shape the kind of person you're looking for. This is one of the reasons in our church that we don't marry someone who's a professing Christian and someone who's not. Your lives will be pulled in radically different directions. You can get along with somebody, but is the mission of your life lined up and heading in the same direction as someone else? Someone to build a the kingdom of God with, partnering with Christ to live as salt and light. Marriage creates a powerful place where God's mission to the world can take place. Healthy marriages don't happen when a spouse wants to know how close to the line they can get without earning a divorce. How close to the line can I get before I'm out of bounds? Rather, together, they run after Jesus and the mission of God. Marriage creates a powerful place for the mission of God. Second, Marriage creates a safe space for God's image bearers to change. Here's what I mean. Jesus is rejecting the idea of promiscuous divorce in his day, and he cites a specific reason for that, adultery. Adultery injects chaos into a relationship. If you've ever experienced it firsthand, or you've gone through it with a friend, it's hard to put into words the chaos and uncertainty, adultery, brings into a marriage relationship. Lack of trust, fear, shame. and No relationship can move forward in God's mission without trust and safety. No relationship can move forward in God's mission without trust and safety. Um, our paper goes into more details about this. But see what Jesus is doing about divorce and where, when is divorce permissible. So again, you can go read all of that. But see what Jesus is doing by saying no to promiscuous divorce. He's saying you are one flesh. You belong to each other. This is an exclusive, lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. And I think part of the idea here is creating emotional and physical safety. Our paper goes into what happens when this isn't the case. There are clearly exceptions here. Um, But I want to talk more about God's vision moving forward. The hope is to create a lifelong relationship where both spouses say to the other, I'm not going anywhere. If we have consumeristic marriages, what happens if your preferences change and I can't meet that anymore? You see how scary that is to be in relationship with somebody? The idea of we just grew apart? Can you imagine the anxiety and uncertainty where you're always chasing the wind of your spouse's approval and their shifting standards? This kind of marriage that Jesus is setting forth here is when where both spouses can say to the other, I'm not going anywhere. This brings peace, whereas adultery brings chaos. A marriage is intended to create a deep sense of safety that's difficult to separate. And it means a marriage creates a safe place for us to become like Christ. So to put it a little bit casually, at the risk of being too casual, it's saying, listen, you're not going to get a divorce because your spouse can't cook. So that means the spouse that can't cook is free to figure out how to cook and be honest that they're not good at cooking. Do you know what I'm saying? When the, when, when the way out is closed, it allows me to safely bring the worst parts about me, knowing that the other person is going to hold me and help carry me to become more like Christ. I will hold you in your flaws because I'm not going anywhere. I'm trusting you to hold me and my flaws because I trust you are not going anywhere. This will require any spouse to see the other as a gift that God has given to them for the sake of their own transformation, and me to them for the sake of their transformation. Seeing your gift as a spouse, they will bother you. They will do things, and some of the things they point out to you that you do are things that you need to stop doing. That is a gift God has given to you for the sake of your own transformation. Seeing your spouse this way may be incredibly difficult, and you may need to get into a real therapist's chair. There's no shame in that. You, I don't know how anybody stays married three, four, five years and has never gone to marriage counseling. I don't know you people. I don't know how that works. Everyone I know with a good marriage has been in marriage counseling. There is no shame in it. Get help. You can join Grace Marriage here. There's lots of opportunities. Fight to see the other as a gift to help you become who God made you to be in Christ. This kind of transformation, where the deepest parts of us are worked out, where that fear, that shame, that guilt are healed, requires a safe place. Lifelong, no-divorce marriages are intended to create that kind of safe place where God's image bearers can change. Finally, marriage creates a compelling picture of God's love to the world. Why do it this way? Why make men and women in God's own image? Why bring them together in marriage at all? Again, At the heart of Christian marriage is God's intention to reveal his love to the world. This is what Paul will go on to say in Ephesians 5. This is what I think Jesus is trying to allude to the Pharisees here. Uh, This is perhaps the great mission opportunity of every marriage. Marriage is a great mystery, Ephesians 5.32, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Too often, the discussion on marriage in the church is focused on divorce, When is it okay? What's the process? This is important, and we've laid it out for you. But the Scripture's emphasis is far more on the power and the purpose of marriage, to be a place where men and women are transformed and reveal to the world God's incredible, relentless love for His church. Is the way we're loving our spouses helping the world understand how Jesus loves His church? Is the way we're looking for a spouse about meeting my personal preferences? or is it about joining God in his mission? Can I see my present spouse or a potential one as a gift from God to help me grow as a partner to join in God's great mission to reconcile the world to himself? If you're unfamiliar with the Gospel of Matthew, we are, we've begun the slow march to Calvary here. Jesus is talking about marriage and divorce, and soon he will be laying his life down for his bride. The great mission that every married couple has is to reveal the love of God to the world, the way Christ loves his church and the way the church submits and follows Christ. So I invite you to allow the Lord's Supper to stir your imaginations with the the possibility of this. Another wonderful illustration of the way Christ loves his church, and we get to model this in our relationships to a watching world. So we remember the night Jesus was betrayed— he took a loaf of bread. He thanked God for it and he broke it. He said, "This is my body given for you." What might happen if we took a posture like this in our relationships? This is my body and I give it I lay it down for you. Remember what Christ has done for you and I will live this out in my life. My body given for you. After the meal, Jesus took a cup of wine and he said, "This is what seals your relationship with God." Not your preferences, not even your performance. It is my blood shed for you. What if we took this kind of posture in our marriages? The blood of Christ seals us. Our mutual commitment to one another seals us. I'm not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. And so Jesus says, drink this and remember what I've done for you. Our tradition at Sojourn, nowadays at least, is we take these little cups. If you missed one, there in the back, or you can grab one on your um, out in the lobby. So I invite you to open it and take the wafer. No, this is the way Christ loved you. He gave his body for you, not when you had earned it or deserved it, but out of his love for you, out of his relentless compassion and pursuit of you, he gave his body for you. Take and eat and remember what he's done for you. Some may be scared. Um, some may be defeated or discouraged by the state of their marriage or the lack of their marriage. I I don't know. Um, we We may feel quite a bit of failure or shame as we hear some of the Lord's commands. And I want to remind you again how you know you are loved by God and kept safe with him. It is the blood of Christ shed for you. So drink this in remembrance of him. We will respond now. By praying, by singing, and then you can respond by giving on your way out. There'll be giving boxes on the front and in the back that you can give on your way out. I'll pray for us, and then we will stand and sing. Let's pray.
0: Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook. Or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series, audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.